0: to the Weird Warriors podcast. I am Max. I am Rich. And on this podcast, we will be focusing on the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. On this episode, we are taking a look at Weird War Tales number 31. But first, Rich has some retroactive history for you. My son and I went
1: down to Sue Glansman's house in mid-July to do a bunch of odd jobs around the house. We met her new dog, Zuni, a four-year-old Yorkie. That's a bundle of energy. I brought both of my dogs down, and she met the second of my two, my jelly Jellybean. Their pictures are already on her fridge. You know, we moved a futon, repaired a bookcase, checked smoke alarm batteries, tore down a rotting workspace outside a garage installed reflective driveway stakes, replaced a worn U.S. flag that Sam had put up before he died, and a few other random tasks. Uh, We visited Sam's grave also. My bronze World War II marker and challenge coins are both still there. Uh, We went out for lunch and gave her a Weird Warriors podcast coffee mug as a gift. She loves it and also wants a shirt. So there you go, people. Susie Q is a fan. Go to Redbubble.com and get your merch. Photos of the trip are in the House of Glansman photo album. We are planning our next non-convention road warriors trip with a different special guest, which you'll probably already know about by the time this episode drops. Uh, We've also recently visited the Long Island National Cemetery, and I paid my respects to John Albano and Joe Simon, both there and on Find a Grave. I was the first person to leave a flower, army flag, on John's page and put up a photo of him. A second person has since thanked him for Jonah Hex and wished he was listed in the cemetery's famous people category list, like Joe Simon, who has 93, quote, quote, flowers. Intel Report, Light Brigade, a four-issue deluxe miniseries by DC Comics. Released in 2005, it was written by Peter Tomasi and illustrated by Peter Snegberg. Uh, there's a war in heaven, and Earth is the battleground in this original supernatural action-adventure horror story set during the Battle of the Bulge of World War II. This epic tale revolves around a ragtag squad of U.S. soldiers that must recover the mysterious Sword of God, a heavenly artifact coveted by angels and demons, before the descendants of fallen angels disguised as Nazis do. If they aren't successful, the world will be destroyed. It's a good thing they've got a mysterious, immortal Roman centurion fighting on their side to even the odds. It's built as a cross between Preacher and Saving Private Ryan. Fantastic read. Loved perusing it again.
0: Okay, and with all that out of the way, we're going to take a small podcast promo break because there are other shows out there, even though I'm sure this is the only one you all listen to. And after the promo, we'll be right back to take a look at the issue at hand.
1: Just imagine the mightiest heroes of our time. All of them on one team. Since there are so many of us, we have a chance to do more than just put out fires. We can be proactive. We can do some real good in the world. JLUcast brings
0: you coverage of Justice League Unlimited, the ultimate gathering of DC's heroes and villains, and the culmination of the greatest interpretation of the DC universe ever. Join
1: Chris and Cindy Franklin as they relive the team-ups, the battles, the conspiracies,
0: I had no idea
1: that the Girl Scouts were responsible for the crop circle phenomenon. Few people do. Few even think to ask the question. The romance and the fun. A head start. You're getting soft in your old age. Don't you have a tall building to go leave? And the adventure continues.
0: Find us wherever fine Fire & Water podcasts are available. back. And now that we are back, we are going to examine Weird War Tales number 31. And as per SOP on the show here, Rich is going to hit you with the cover detail. You know who did it. Luis Dominguez.
1: Still only 20 cents. The green coloring of Weird War Tales blends perfectly with the teal sky on the cover under a blood red moon partially screened by misty clouds. A skeletal German soldier in a tattered uniform leads four more silhouetted soldiers with bayoneted rifles onto a rock outcropping. He wears an ammo bandolier and a pistol belt, has a weapon in one hand, and restrains a skeletal dog with the other. Underneath the outcropping is an injured American soldier in an equally tattered uniform, one leg in a splint, laying in a few inches of water. The fear on the GI's face is all too evident. Cover date, November 1974. Date of release, August 27th, 1974. Killjoy, I have no idea what weapon that lead German soldier is carrying. The bandolier doesn't quite look right either. Comments and commendations, we've had some pretty good no thank you covers in this series so far. And this has to be one of the top five. Bad enough having skeletons coming after you being injured and having one of the skeletal pursuers being a fricking dog. Excuse me. I'd like to wake up now. Great start for the issue. Yep.
0: A real stunner of a cover here. Thanks, especially to the excellent coloring work as I often call out, but they keep doing a great job. As you mentioned, The logo and the sky complement each other perfectly, and the lighting on the injured soldier in the foreground draws the eye to his predicament effectively. Again, great cover design, coloring working hand in hand, and yes, Skeletal Hound. Bonus points. Love it. Off to another great start. Now, with the cover out of the way, Rich is going to take us into the first full-length story in the issue. Death waits twice. Eight pages, script by Robert
1: conniger art by Frank Reyes. Board a transport ship en route to attack a Japanese-held island. Sergeant Scully draws the card of death from Private Dooney's deck of cards. Dooney's parents were Magyar gypsies and had passed their secrets to him. Scully is fated to die at dawn in an explosion. He doesn't believe it and demands someone else be dealt a Delta card. Dooney deals to himself and pulls the same card. He, too, is fated to die at dawn in an explosion. Scully kicks the cards across the deck and orders his squad to hit the sack. As he storms off, he mocks Dooney's prediction, but sweat beads on his forehead. Dawn. As the U.S. invasion fleet bombards the enemy island, the soldiers swarm down cargo nets hanging on the side of the ship until loading craft moored alongside. Dooney sees Scully and bids him farewell. I'll see you in hell. The cards never lie. As Scully starts down the net, he mentally curses Dooney for trying to scare him. Dooney can't possibly know for sure, but Scully can't take the chance. He pretends to slip and falls into the water, then stays underwater until the driver on the landing craft thinks Scully had drowned and heads for the beach. Surfacing, Scully curses Dooney for getting into his head like that. Suddenly, the landing craft is obliterated when it strikes the floating mine. Dooney knew! He was right! And now he was dead. Scully would be dead, too, if he hadn't faked his fall. Another landing craft picks Scully up and brings him ashore with the second wave. Knowing he could only be killed in an explosion at dawn, Scully is in the thick of the fighting that day. As night falls, Scully realizes he has to stay out of the action at dawn. The lieutenant orders Scully to take point as the unit moves out at sunrise. Scully knows it's a death sentence. So he tells Nick, the soldier he's sharing the foxhole with, to take point. Scully will cover him. Leading the way as the sun peeks over the jungle, Nick steps on a landmine and is blown to pieces. Scully has cheated death again. The day passes. The LT orders Scully to take a machine gun team to the river's edge to defend their position against a possible Japanese counterattack at dawn. As the night wears on, Scully's heart blasts in his chest as he tries to think of a way to escape Declaring he was going to ask about being relieved, Scully leaves the two gunners and hides in the jungle halfway between their lines and the river. At dawn, Scully hears the machine gun post come under heavy attack. Explosions from grenades and mortar shells fill the air. Scully leaves the men to their fate. After not hearing a sound for 30 minutes, he returns to the machine gun nest and finds his two men dead along with numerous Japanese. Scully had won again, but the Japanese launch a second attack. The machine is smashed and Scully's rifle won't slow the enemy down. Fortunately, one of the gunners, Vic, had a couple of grenades. Scully throws one that explodes amongst the charging Japanese, prying the second one out of the dead man's hand. Scully is horrified when the spoon falls off. Vic had already pulled the pin when he was killed. The grenade explodes. And Scully keeps his dawn appointment with death. Killjoy, page two, panel six. Sergeant Scully's name tape says, Sergeant Scully. I've addressed this whole name tape thing in earlier episodes, and it wouldn't be on that side of the shirt,
0: and the red wouldn't be on it. Anyway, Max. All right, comments and commendations. <laughs> I must announce I have a minor killjoy here in <laughs> CNC. So the death card does not always mean actual death in the tarot and it actually depends on whether the card is upright or reversed when displayed upright the death card can mean transformation endings change transition letting go a release reversed the card can signify fear of change repeating negative patterns resisting change stagnancy or decay it can also be interpreted as death by but by no means is that the major way or the only way the card can be read so little killjoy that aside holy moly do we get to ring the old comics man bell this time is not going to get into it but sergeant scully not super sensitive as a person so story-wise this was perfectly enjoyable if a bit predictable Not the first time we've seen this kind of cheating fate set up in Weird War Tales, you know, getting into a little Oedipus, trying to get out of stuff and ending up in it anyway. But it was a fun run through the comic book car wash. Nonetheless, the art certainly helped. Reyes is completely new to me and his work here is clean. The storytelling is clear and the characters have actual character. In particular, I like the shots of Scully at the bottom of page, two. He reminds me of Hanover Fist, F-I-S-T-E, from the Heavy Metal movie. That movie came out in 1981, and the Captain Stern, with two N's at the end if you're Googling, Heavy Metal magazine story that featured Hanover Fist was published in 1980, but still, it's it's kind of a similar look, the big lantern-jawed head. You, you'll, you'll see it if you look it up. I say that Reyes' storytelling is clear and clean, but he can slip into some moody and atmospheric drawing slippers, too. Check out the first three panels on page seven. The twisting trees, the shadows, the misty purple background colors. Great stuff. Thumbs up from me on this opening tale.
1: Just like the 70s or the decade of voodoo, it was also when tarot cards were a huge part of the cultural clique. Although the word tarot is never used here. Conniger does what Conniger does. First time a Reyes, meets the challenge with flying colors. Every panel where someone gets killed in an explosion, where the reds and blacks form silhouettes of the casualty with debris, sometimes being blown off the body is real eye-catching. I'll go page one, panel four, where Scully is getting blown through a tarot death card. I also like page six, panel one, of The Sun Rising in the Jungle. His rendition of Death is great, too. Awesome story. Hope we can keep
0: it up. But will we? I wonder if we will. So, to find out, we'll go to the second story in this issue. It is called The Story of a Real Dog Face. It's six pages long. Script is by Arnold Doom Patrol Drake. Art is by Bill. I don't have a catchy middle name for him. Drought. And the synopsis goes a little something like this. Sergeant Crawford is an instructor at a canine dog training center. He's a kind and patient man, teaching the handlers that the dog assigned to them would learn to love them and even die for them. The handlers should be prepared to do the same. Private Snell has the opposite attitude. For him, the loyalist dog is the one you beat the most. Dogs, donkeys, and dames, they all learn better with a kick than a kiss. Let's be ringing that old comics man bell again right there. Crawford then talks to Corporal Mann later in his office. Crawford believes in the circle of life, reincarnation. He'd like to come back as a dog or maybe a monarch butterfly, the prettiest thing that lives, in his opinion. Snell only believes in death, which is why Crawford hates him so much. As time passes, the tension between Crawford and Snell grows nastier, until Crawford catches Snell kicking one of the dogs. He flattens Snell with a punch to the jaw, and the other handlers come running, laughing. Snell apologizes, knowing how Crawford loves the dogs so much. That night, Crawford leaves the semi-weekly non-com poker game to check the perimeter guards. Three hands of cards in the game later, dots are heard. The poker players scramble to discover Sergeant Crawford is dead. Snell had shot him by accident after Crawford hadn't replied to three of Snell's challenges. No one believes Snell, but it's impossible to prove. By odd coincidence, Crawford's favorite dog, Marie, was giving birth that very minute. And Corporal Mann remembers Crawford's belief in reincarnation. Not assigned as a handler, but as a paper pusher, man is strangely drawn to the runt of the litter and takes ownership. He calls the dog Sarge, of course, and the other handlers are amused at how close the two of them are. Time passes and little Sarge grows up. Snell is now a sergeant and an instructor at the post. In his eyes, Sarge is government property and must be trained, despite man's objections. On the very first day of training, Snell kicks Sarge when Sarge refuses to heal. Sarge immediately attacks Snell and rips out his throat before any of the other handlers can stop it. Sarge then runs off into the woods, dodging fire from the sentries. The man isn't ordered to join the hunt for the rogue dog, but he goes out anyway. As luck would have it, He finds Sarge, who barks in excitement, happy to see him. Tears running down his face. Man pets the dog, then shoots the animal. Walking back to post, a cocoon falls out of a tree and lands on man's shoulder. He keeps it. He has a feeling it's going to be a very special monarch butterfly. And we end there. Killjoy?
1: I don't know why a canine instruction center needs multiple armed sentry posts. CNC, we all know Max will be in full agreement with me here. When I say another scumbag that's cruel to animals gets what's coming to him. Perhaps it's a vengeance from beyond the grave story, depending on how you want to present it. I don't know. My killjoy took an unusual amount of the pleasure out of the experience for me. Not sure why, but on the flip side, We've all had to make the call to the vet when your pet's time has come. It's a truly crappy thing to go through. I've had to do it five times, and it reduced me to tears each time. But at least it's not the physical act of shooting the animal yourself. Definitely the most depressing story in the book. Probably in the running for most depressing story we've gotten to in the title so far, actually. Got to pick a fave panel. So we'll go page one, panel one. Reminiscent of the cover of a skeletal soldier narrator holding a skeletal dog.
0: Yep. As for your killjoy, I would just say the multiple armed sentry posts are there because, you know, dogs deserve more protections, more protection than humans. That's just a fact. So I CNC, I'll say, quite angry with Arnold Drake at this particular moment in time. I want it on the record that I consider the final page of this story to be unnecessary, unwarranted unacceptably cruel to unsuspecting readers like myself. I mean, Crawford's death? Sure, it's Weird War Tales. And he's just a stupid old human besides. But squeezing in the old yeller bit at the end, or of Mice and Men if you want to stretch it, what the heck? This this is Weird War Tales. You get the vengeance from beyond the grave, then it's cue the helmeted skeleton and make with the puns. The end. What, we had to be realistic about the dog's fate? when we play so fast and loose with all the other details. That being said, the story worked well for the most part, and the very old-school art of Bill Drought set a disarmingly charming tone for the proceedings. I gotta say, Crawford is one philosophical sergeant, isn't he? Page two, panels three through five, when he's waxing poetic about reincarnation and the circle of life and everything, I'm like, this is a deep-thinking canine unit sergeant type person but okay fine they come from all walks of life right that's the whole point of the armed forces so all of bill's dog drawings in the story were great and that is no small thing in the comic book industry finding people who can draw animals well is not common and uh page five panel four will get my spotlight vote as sarge 2, the dog lunges for the jerk holes soon to be open throat I can't knock the craft on display here, even if I have mentally erased the last page from my personal headcanon. So, you know, obviously a lot of uh, Max centric issues with just one page in the story. Otherwise, I can't knock it at all. So with the first two full length stories out of the way, we are gonna mosey on down to the letters page that they call the APO Weird War Tales. And this one takes a look at Weird War Tales number 26, which had Satan in World War I, a vanishing village, and a guilty B-25 pilot, as you may remember. My spotlighted letter comes from Linus Sabalis, I think. He is from Duvernay Laval, PQ, Canada. I hardly know what that means, except I recognize the word Canada. But his letter goes like this. Dear Joe. I see you mentioned in several issues of Weird War Tales that incoming mail is quite low. The day after Doomsday stories perk up the mag. Okay, the last one did, but all right. But try getting fresh new ideas into WWT. Things such as wars between Greek and Norse gods, between two alien races without human help on either side, between groups of monsters or monsters against men, between tribes of cavemen. We've had that, that there was the story called The Pool. You know, buddy, or maybe even wars in a subatomic world. You could even write about a war that caused the sinking of Atlantis. The ideas are too numerous, and I don't want to take up the entire letters page. So I'll sign off now. And our editor responds and says, some of your ideas are quite intriguing. And we're going to pass them on to our writers post haste. And I just want to make a callback to the original promo for this show, in which I was scripted to use the word post haste. And here it appears in this very magazine. So we have come full circle. I thank you very much.
1: <laughs> just to answer your question there, PQ probably is a Provence de Quebec, as in Quebec, Canada. We, oui, oui. we. Give it a guess the is kind of a Q2, but whatever all right um hey, hey. i'm gonna I'm gonna jump ahead just a just a little bit a little bitty bit of it maybe even wars in a comic world um cough cough next story cough cough but anyway my letter first tom Kershaw, seattle washington says s-e-z dear joe shell shock That's the only way to describe the thrill of seeing two stories illustrated by Alfred Alcala in one issue of Weird War Tales, and topped off by an Ernie Chua treat, too. Wow! Of course, the stories themselves were good also, but I expect that from your mag. It maintains a consistently high level of quality in the scripting department, and it's only in the art that we ever get surprises. This issue qualified as a very nice surprise art-wise. I'm now eagerly waiting for the Frank Robbins treat you promised in the letters section. Tom Krishan, Seattle, Washington.
0: Indeed, very cool. Uh, It was a good letters page in general. I just say we have to spotlight just a couple of them. But hey, the uh, APO Weird War Tales being complete and closed for business Business. until the the next mail call. We're going to move on to the third story in the issue. And Rich... Has it well in hand? Indeed. Doomsday, not day after Doomsday. Doomsday, separate
1: genre. Six pages, script by David Byrne, art by Alex Nino. David Byrne Reed had a boatload of writing pseudonyms, among them Coram Nobis, Alexander Blade, Craig Ellis, Clyde Woodruff, and Peter Horn. He went by Coram Nobis here in his only Weird War Tales appearance. And so, For the first time ever, we give you a history minute in the story intro. The writ of Coram Nobis is a legal order allowing a court to correct its original judgment upon discovery of a fundamental error that did not appear in the records of the original judgment's proceedings and would have prevented the judgment from being pronounced. The term Coram Nobis is Latin for before us, i.e. the king, and the meaning of its full form, K Coram Nobis Resident is which things remain in our presence the writ of coram nobis originated in the courts of common law in the English legal system during the 16th century the writ of coram nobis still exists today in a few courts in the United States well 1974 in 1907 the writ became obsolete in England and replaced by other means of correcting errors however the writ survives in the United States in various forms in the federal courts in the courts of 16 states and district of columbia courts for those courts with the authority to issue a writ of quorum nobis, the rules and guidelines differ, sometimes significantly. Each state is free to operate its own quorum nobis procedures independent of other state counts, as well as the federal court system. In other words, the criteria issued to issue the writ in one state or federal court system are different from the criteria required to issue the writ in a different court system. Sounds like a bit like the current Roe versus Wade debacle. <sighs> A writ can be granted only by the court where the original judgment was entered, so those seeking to correct a judgment must understand the criteria required for that specific court. I was boring myself to tears reading that. But hey, you know what? The biggest question is why David Verne chose Coram Nobis as a pen name. Synopsis, finally. Long before the planet Zeres had a history, it had a fearful legend. It began with the coming of a blinding light. Then a series of cosmic blows sent the planet reeling through infinite space. The great storm was over, the planet was ravaged, its cities gone, her people all but annihilated, but her people rebuilt. And as eons passed, her cities rose, and space travel was within their reach. It was during this boisterous era that young Prince Adu, notorious for his dissolute ways, suddenly abandoned it all and chose the life of a hermit. Years passed, until the day that twilight flickered, and the horrible truth broke through Adu's meditation. A great flood is coming, and the end of the world draws near. They must flee Zeres. Most of the people didn't believe him, despite the fact that three neighboring planets had vanished. Many did believe him. They anointed Adu their prophet and began planning their flight from Zeres. Some thought differently and hoped to build underground cities, but Adu insisted there was no escaping the coming flood on Zeres. Flight was the only option. More and more people joined Adu's quest, and spaceships were built in a far-off valley. A planet almost exactly like theirs was discovered within the universe. Soon, those that wished to leave would be able to do so. But the great warrior princes had enough of Adu's prophecies. They claimed he spent fear and chaos, and he and his followers must be destroyed. As Adu's ships loaded with his followers, the valley's room was lined by the warrior prince's weapons. Their first ship to launch was destroyed, but Adu knew that some of the ships would survive. But at that moment, a blinding light struck. A great convulsive shock hurled the planet into celestial space, then water crushed everything. It was the end of the world. But in another, an infinitely greater world, Xeris was nothing more but a golf ball. The golfer complained he'd only used the ball once last spring, and the first time he uses it this year, he sends it right into a pond. Fortunately, his caddy has another dozen of them. No killjoy. Lunging into the sea and sea. yeah, I'm pretty sure there are a lot of environmentalists that would agree that altering the landscape to play golf will eventually destroy the planet. George Carlin had a great bit about what a colossal waste of space all the golf courses are and how elitist the game, not a sport is. But, get into the story. While the ignored warnings of impending doom trope is both often used, Superman's Krypton, and timely, climate change here, I had a hard time with this one. Niño's usually fantastic art seemed to me to be a jumbled mess this time that was too heavy on the inks. Rereading it, I caught Burns' golf ball cues. Page three, panel four. Three neighboring planets have vanished, but we are unharmed. There are four balls in the sleeve. Page five, panels one and three, our astronomers have found a planet almost exactly like ours within the universe, and the devastating machines of war were in place all along the rim of the valley, completely encircling it. There were a few panels I liked in this futuristic Aztec apocalypse tale, though, like the splash page,
0: yet again. But all in all, not a great ending to the book. Well, before I uh, get to my CNC, I just want to say I bet if what's his what's his real name here i bet yeah, Vern. David verne yeah i bet if david verne is still alive that i can guess one of his passwords is probably coram nobis one <laughs> just like he picked that pen name because no one knew what the heck that meant you know it's something he stumbled onto and he's like cool you know so to this day i didn't i've never heard that term even with all the dumb courtroom drama stuff that i've watched on tv so again pretty sure i know one of his passwords on to uh The C&C here, the reason I'm delaying that is I have to hang my head in agreement and say for the first time, I did not like Alex Nino's work at all in this story, save for again, like you said, that more typically excellent splash panel, and the cool-looking host holding the book of Zeris. Other than that, this was just some of the worst work I've seen on a comic book story, period, really. Uh, I'm... My mouth dropped open. I I found my brain trying to make myself like it more. It's because it's out <laughs> in I just couldn't do it. So both the story and the art for me seem to be buying time here. I mean, stories just like this were mastered by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko long before this one was published and they could do it in less pages and with far more personality to boot heck. They could do a monster book with the same story three times and just change the details and make it entertaining and they did it. They had no shame. They had but they had a lot more skill than what was on display in this story. So this was an awkward, messy waste of a tale unfortunately. But it did inspire me to want to go back and read more old Lee Ditko sci-fi and horror stories from the pre- fantastic Four air and I'm maybe gonna- this is why this is his only episode of weird war tales
1: <laughs> because yeah. oh, this is
0: like me also. Yeah. <laughs> really i mean but go back and read those stories people those are awesome uh, i can't recommend that stuff strongly enough and now from from that impromptu advertisement for other comic books we're gonna move on from the content of the issue story-wise to our spotlighted That's for the issue, and I will kick it off for you. I got one that's between pages seven and eight of the first story. We have this ad for an authentic Superman costume. Authentic, complete with Robin's mask from the Batman and Robin TV show. We'll have a picture on the Facebook page. It's adorable, as Yogurt would say. Oddly enough, this costume might just have gotten an homage in a recent Dark Crisis tie-in from DC Comics, picture will also be provided below. I gotta imagine the artist and possibly the writer saw this ad because the parallels are pretty freaking close. (laughs) Uh, they, They straight up have a young Superboy, John Kent, in a blue and red version of Robin's outfit with the Robin mask on, but he's standing in the same pose. Again, not an uncommon Superman pose, but side by side, these creators who did... The more recent DC comic are around our age, mine and Rick's age. So, I'm betting that was a direct lift on purpose. So. The ad has a little bit of copy under the awesome picture, even though it hardly needs any. It says, just slip into this authentic, quote-unquote, Superman costume. Put on the concealing mask, again, like Superman always does. And in seconds, you are Superman, that fearless fighter of evil, made of long-lasting, fire-retarded, you know, fire-retarded, fire-retardant, whatever, materials to give you weeks and months of fun. After that, though, it's done. Apparently, weeks and months, then it's over. Be the first on your block. They went for that line. Even then, I gotta imagine that is an overused line in ads. Be the first on your block. The envy of your friends. Send only six ninety eight plus thirty seven cents service charge for C O D. All this, what, the, what? I don't even remember how CODs work. If not delighted, return for a full refund. Yeah, I'm sure that worked out. And it, you sent this this cash or your COD or whatever off to the Honor House department in Lynbrook, New York. The Honor House. This all sounds on the up and up. I, I you know it's gotta be. Again, people out there, if you ordered this Superman costume with the Robin mask, please let us know. I gotta see this thing and I'm not gonna look for it online. As soon as we hit record, I'm I'm gonna forget everything that I just said. So that's my spotlighted ad. Costume does not give wearer the ability to fly. I, I would
1: pay real good money though to see if they ever got a returned Superman costume with bloody bottles. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to hell for that joke, but it
0: can't be helped. <laughs> this is why Rich and I have been friends since 19- grade. <laughs>
1: Oh, yeah, I almost took that ad, but literally right next to it, right next to it, is the American Indian Hand Wrestling Kit.
0: I was tempted by that one, too.
1: (laughs) Only $7.98. Adjustable tensioners build strong muscles fast. This Indian Hand Wrestling Kit builds strong arm and chest muscles in the privacy of your home. Eliminate bulky, expensive equipment. Use it just a few minutes a day, and anyone will build up his confidence as well as his muscles. Since no partner is needed, you can practice at any time. Give oh. both arms by simply turning the hand wrestler around. Add additional tensioners as your muscles develop. Send only seven ninety-eight plus dollars plus $1 for postage and handling, and start building those mighty arms and shoulders right away see results in 14 days or your money back and this is also from the honor house production corporation different box though this is eight eight six ex three one so ooh, whatever so yeah american indian hand wrestling kit that, that takes us back to the early 70s remember when you were a kid when you were like in elementary school and the teacher told you everyone to sit down on the floor indian style yeah, they don't call it that anymore. They call it, you know, cross legs or something like that. Ah, uh, uh, the 70s. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh my god, man. Yeah, the honor house was a moving target, man. They had a lot of different addresses, a lot of different aliases. They they you you had hard. This was the 70s version of bouncing around multiple servers to to like obscure your trail. But I gotta say, I love the fact that they call out. Only one hand required, no partner necessary. There's no jokes we could make in there, so we're going to move on. Absolutely none for a family show, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing there to say. We are going to move on to the section we like to call Godney Last Words. Death Waits Twice ran away with this one. Books
1: started strong, but each successive story was a little worse than the one before it. Good ads on Letters Page, though. Gotta put this one smack dab
0: in the middle of the WWT pile. I thank God we're not trying to keep track of ratings. I, uh, God, I would have lost my mind already. So, the dog story would have run away with it for me, as listeners have probably figured out by now. But that last page put old Yeller out of his misery. The opening tale was freaking great, though, so that's fine. Cut that last story out completely, and I'd still rate this issue pretty highly. So... All in all, not bad for your 20 cents. Are we up to 25 cents yet? No, we're still at 20 cents, right? Still 20 20, 20 cents, although...
1: It's coming soon. Yep, very soon. I've uh, already written the script. You have it in your inbox. It's coming. It's coming fast.
0: You have. (laughs) While we ignore the fact that I haven't worked on that script yet, we are going to move on to the dead letter office, a section where we talk about... You know, email, correspondence, social media stuff, you know. And at the time of this recording, we're still in between episodes at the very end of the infamous summer slowdown. But we have a combo move, people. It's a WWPX and Weird Warriors podcast at gmail.com crossover. None other than Jason Zeller founder and sole owner of the Jason Zeller binge listener award has seemingly become the first listener to let us know about his acquisition of some weird warrior podcast merch. Jason sent us photographic evidence of his shiny new WWP mug. So Jason has both founded and earned yet another award from the show name of award to be determined.
1: you, You almost, you almost need that clip from ghostbusters. You know, when they get that first paying customer, we got one.
0: <laughs> if I was more of an editing type person with more effort within the core of my being, which I'm not, I would simply grab that and throw it in here. Because what are the chances of us getting sued or listened? <laughs> Probably very little. So, also over at the Gmail address, Internet Superstar comic book, D.C. comic book expert and all around great person, Sir Martin Gray, wrote in to say, hi, Richard Max. It's great to hear that the recent episode on the modern Weird War tales went down really well. I enjoyed it, but not so much that I wanted to replace the Bronze Age issues in the rotation. Let it wait its turn. Bah, kids today. To which I responded, if we make it wait its turn, we won't get to it for another six years or so, probably more like, you know, eight or nine. So we ain't doing that, Martin. I'm, I'm sorry. Actually, the very next episode to come out real soon after this recording is issue two of the 1997 Weird War Tales series. I, I did
1: the math, and it, it seems to be like originally one of these 97 books or the one-shots would be released once a year if you're going to spread it out over the course of the run. And so we, we're going to release one, you know, in the next calendar year anyway. But you know, as we've noticed, the feedback on that issue is just, it's very popular. So we just felt the need to up the releases a little bit.
0: And yeah, people, if you want to, if you have feedback about the scheduling or anything like that, write into the Gmail. Hitting me up on Twitter is the wrong tree to bark up. Rich doesn't do the Gmail, and he's not on Twitter. So hit him up on the Facebook page. Bother him over there and see how much you can change his mind. Because I'm going on 30 years, and it hasn't really happened, all right? So (laughs) rest assured, we're right there in general shaking our fists at passing whippersnappers with Martin Gray and everybody else. But that's also why you're not going to change Rich's mind. So... With the dead letter office out of the way and the business at hand coming to a close. Rich, it's going to hit you with the teaser for the next episode.
1: Weird War Tales 32 is what you're here for. Gluttonous Crusaders. Killer Constellations. Wonder Dogs. The holidays are almost upon us. Tune in and
0: get a break before all those dang carols start. Hey, I'm a Gluttonous Crusader and I like Wonder Dogs. (laughs) two out of three ain't bad so that sounds good to me until next time people this has been the weird warriors podcast we are the weird warriors we are the batlim bros we are the gluttonous crusaders (laughs) rich has the wonder dogs i have the wonder cats and we promise to make war
1: no more